Welcome to the Gotham World's Fair, a dream of the future. A bright tomorrow filled with hope and promise for all mankind. This is a vision of the shimmering utopia, where we shall all spend the rest of our lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of Legends of the Batman. My name is Michael Kaiser. And I am Michael Bradley. And this week we are looking into all Batman material released back in May of 1940, uh, which for Batman is still just comic books, but again, we're going to be looking at two comic books uh, for this episode. We got Detective Comics number 40 and the 1940 edition of New York's World Fair. Cool. So two weeks in a row we got more, yeah. than just, more than just Detective to cover. That's kind of fun. And we're venturing into books that don't have Batman's name on the cover, so that's pretty cool. Oh, that's true. Um, but before we do that, we uh, skipped it last week, but we're going to go ahead and read some emails again this week. The uh, First up, we got one from Bill Jordane. Sorry if I'm butchering your last name, Bill. Uh, but the subject line is great show, and it says, "Hey guys, I love the new show. I've given you a shout out on my website. You can read it here." And then he gives you a link. Uh, his his site is uh, goldenagecomics.org. Um, and then he goes on. It's fun to hear your take on Golden Age origins of my favorite hero from that era. I'm cert- I've certainly enjoyed reading these stories over the years and writing and podcasting about them. Keep up the good work, Bill. So thank you, Bill. Bill hosts, or hosted, I guess you should say, the Golden Age of Comic Books podcast. Um, he's not doing the show anymore, but you can still find that on iTunes or at his website, which uh, goldenagecomics.org. And he used to have a Golden Age Batman site, too, but he has uh, pared that down to just kind of the, the bare essentials. But um, his, his podcast is really good, so I encourage you to check that out. Cool. Our next letter is from Calvin Bowes, and he writes... In my last letter, I said why I felt it was good that we saw Zorro the night his parents died. Here are some possible films that Bruce could have seen at the time and what his fate may have been. Number one, the original Ben-Hur. His parents are killed and he avenges their death by challenging bad guys to a chariot race. Number two, Tarzan of the Apes with Elmo Lincoln. His parents are killed, so he dons a loincloth and trains animals and goes after bad guys swinging on a vine. (laughs) 
Number three, he could have gone to see Birth of a Nation, but that would make Bruce join the KKK, so let's not go there. Yeah, let's not go yeah. there. Uh, number four, he could have seen It with Clara Bow, which is a comedy about people who have the magnetic quality known as It. His parents are killed, and even though they are dead, he vows to be cool and one day marry a girl as hot as Clara Bow. Villains would be safe with this one. <laughs> and number five, he could have seen The Sheik with Rudolph Valentino. He would fight off the bad guys, but he would have gone home to his harem of wives. So the moral of the, moral of the story, be careful of which movie you go to see with your family. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's good he went to see Zorro, huh? Yeah. I don't think those other uh, options would have lasted quite as long. but No, probably not The Sound of Music either, so unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for the email, Calvin. Um, next up we have Jared, the subject being great show also. So apparently we have a great show, which is great. Um, and he writes... Hi, I just wanted to say that I'm really liking the show so far. You guys have a great chemistry together, and you do a good job at presenting and, when necessary, poking fun at these great Golden Age comics. Um, we don't poke fun, do we? No, I don't know. What he's, <laughs> he's wrong there. Anyway. Um, also, a while back you guys asked about the two stories that Matt Wagner did based on two of the more classic Golden Age stories, Batman and the Monster Men and Batman and the Mad Monk. I have both of those stories, and I would definitely recommend them. Wagner takes the concepts of these stories and not only frames them in a much more put-together and modern way, but in a way that fits with Batman's current year-one continuity. It also gives Julie Madison a legit personality, and the Mad Monk looks more like a vampire, if that is indeed what he is. Anyway, keep up the great show, Jared. Is that Batman and the Monster Men, is that based off of that second Hugo Strange story? That's we talked my, about last episode? That's my understanding, yeah. Okay. I haven't actually seen it or read it, but I have perused through the Batman and the Mad Monk. I haven't, you know, sat down and read it cover to cover yet, but um, it would be cool to read a story where Julie is, has got some character. Personality, yeah. yeah or something. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I probably will read that someday. Just, But, again, thanks for the email, Jared. And our next email is, again, from Calvin Bowes, and he writes, Have you guys seen the 1924 film The Bat? I just saw it for the first time, and this film feels like an iconic Batman movie, but in reverse. The Bat is actually a bad guy who... Oh, excuse me. The Bat is actually a bad guy, but he dresses like a bat to strike fear. He also uses a bat signal that he projects on the wall. Also, when he leaves messages, he signs it with a bat symbol. If you have not seen this, for you who are doing this Golden Age Batman show, truly must see it, and please comment on it. This film should be required viewing for all Batman fans. I have not seen it. Uh, uh, no. It, but... Yeah, we've talked about it before, I think. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the, the, the movies that Kane himself listed as inspiration for the creation of Batman. So, um, yeah, I, I could see why that'd probably be worth watching. Sounds cool. And the uh, one more email for this time, it's from Jared again, and it's, uh, the subject is The Untold Legends of the Batman and More. And Jared wrote, I'm listening to episode 12 right now, and I thought maybe I could answer your questions about The Untold Legends of the Batman book. While I don't remember if the villain had heads for feet, I do remember that the whole crux of the story was that someone stole a specific item from the Batcave, and Bruce was trying to find out who. All the while, he's having mysterious flashbacks to some of his first adventures, including his origin and his first encounter with that mysterious new partner that you'll hint about next 
next episode, which obviously Robin. Uh-huh. It's been a while since I read it. I may have to look around for it on eBay myself, but it's really good and I would recommend it. Also, as a suggestion, since Batman's kill count is going to be redundant after a while, I have another thing that you can keep count on. I listened to another Batman-related podcast called Bat Bat Radia, maybe Bat Radia. Bat. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. Okay, we'll say Bat Radia. And while they focus more on the modern books, they have also done a lot of classic issues. And one of the things they've noticed is this: Batman gets head hit in the back of the head a lot, <laughs> a lot. Like it's surprising that he can still be the world's greatest detective after being whacked with a blackjack so often, instead of a Mike Tyson-esque figure whose mouth dribbles a bit of drool after every sentence. You might need to go back a couple issues to get an accurate count, but having a record of it would be pretty funny, I think. Great episode, guys. Jared. Yeah, we. I think there was a few episodes back, there was one story where he got knocked out from behind twice, I think, or, yeah. or something like that. So, um, As far as that book that I was talking about, I think I've narrowed it down to a book called The Further Adventures of Batman, which was an anthology of... You know, various short stories by different uh, writers, and I think the story I'm thinking of is called Subway Jack by Joe Lansdale. I I still can't find any confirmation on whether or not it has a guy with heads for feet, but um, it was a story about like some demon coming from another world that he initially thinks is just a standard serial killer, and then it turns out to be so much more. Um, so I'm guessing maybe that's what I'm thinking of: is this demon looks really crazy, and it creeped me out. <laughs> Um, but I, I also remember there was another story in there called neutral ground that was about like this underground, uh, inventor who like creates weapons for both Batman and his villains, you know, independently of one another. Hmm. So yeah, I think that's the book, but, uh, or maybe I just have a really wonky memory and there are no stories that involve heads with feet or heads for feet, but who could make that up? Right. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we have a, another iTunes review. This one from Andrew Dothwaite, I hope, is how you say that. And it says, I like this podcast, as it is nice to revisit the classics. I also wanted to add that, even if not line for line like Detective Comics number 627, Detective Comics 853 also pays homage to the first cover. The first cover being Detective 27, I assume he's talking about. Um, This was a part of Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader, where Batman dies. And he gave us four out of five stars. So thank you, Andrew. Um, I think we may have talked about um, number 853 in our show notes or something after the fact. I think I put it in the show notes for that episode, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, thanks again for that review. Yes, that makes that's our third, right? Um, I believe so. All right, so we got nine more to go. Come on, guys. Chop, chop. Yep. So the first issue we're going to talk about tonight is Detective Comics number 40, which had a cover date of June 1940 and was released sometime around May 7th of that year with the normal 10-cent price and 64 pages of content. The cover is by Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson, and it shows a scene that's undoubtedly inspired by the final story in Batman number 1 as Robin dangles precariously off a flagpole while the Batman and the Joker wrestle on a roof behind him yeah so either at this point they just don't care what they make the cover about or (laughs) or this was intended for batman number one maybe or or i wondered too if they were just you know whipping out covers and stories and then and then they they just just happened to pick that story when they were 
putting Batman number one together, and they just saved the cover till later. But see, and if, even if they did that, though, that means that they they must have done both Joker stories, unless they did them out of order or something. So that's pretty far ahead if – I don't know. Well, they might have had the two – yeah, they might have had like all four stories that we looked at from that issue done, mm-hmm. and they just said, oh, we'll use these four. Of course, we never see a, a cover that goes with the Catwoman story or the Hugo Strange one, so I could be wrong. And this and this guy on this cover, you know, he could be the Joker, but he's obviously colored not to be the Joker. Um, right. Here. So maybe it was just a – generic cover that they incorporated into that Joker story too. Who knows? Anyway. Yeah. But unfortunately the Joker does not appear in the story that we're going to look at, (laughs) but we do get another cool villain. Yep. Sort of. So, um, the story was, uh, was 12 pages long and it was not titled originally, but has since gained the title, the murders of Clayface. It was written by Bill Finger with pencils by Bob Kane and inks by Kane and Jerry Robinson and edited by our normal editor of uh, Whitney Ellsworth. Again, the mighty Batman and that young laughing Robin Hood of today, Robin, the boy wonder, plunge deep into a baffling mystery. Again, they fight a master of crime, a master of murder, a black-cloaked hideous figure that menaces their very lives as he leaves behind a trail of corpses. And our story begins as Bruce Wayne visits his fiancée, Julie Madison, at Argus Motion Picture Company, where she is acting in a remake of a picture called Dread Castle. Bruce meets a Mr. Bentley, head of Argus, as well as Kenneth Todd, who stars in the film as the Terror. As they're talking, in comes Basil Carlo, who starred in the original version of the picture, to wish Todd good luck. Carlo says he hopes Todd is as smart as he was foolish, a remark that puzzles Bruce until Little Miss Exposition a.k.a. Julie, explains that Carlo became a big star, then did a lot of crazy things which earned him you know, bad publicity and pretty much ruined his career. Just then, Ned Norton bursts in and fumes at Bentley over being fired as director. Bentley explains that he was fired because he had disappeared for several days, and Bentley says his decision was final, which angers Norton even more, causing him to threaten Bentley, saying that they'll never finish the picture without him. As Bentley takes Bruce and Julie on a tour of the set, they hear yet another argument, this one between the film's female lead, Lorna Dane, and her former boyfriend, Fred Walker. Dane acts like, well, most women in Golden Age comics, and Walker isn't taking the breakup too well. And after some inconsequential exposition, the fight ends with Walker threatening, You vixen, I ought to kill you. You don't deserve to live. Laugh at me, will you? When I get through with you, you won't ever laugh again. Ever. Inexplicably, we cut to later as Bruce and Julie are saying goodbye to Bentley. And as they leave, Bentley is confronted by Roxy Brenner, a gangster looking to score some protection money. Bentley blows him off, causing Brenner to threaten that there may soon be some accidents that will make Bentley wish he changed his mind. Back at home, Bruce tells Dick that he suspects something bad is going to happen at the studio. Yes, sir, something is going to happen, and soon. Several days later, (laughs) Bruce visits the set again to watch the filming of the scene where the terror, played by Todd, is to kill the Countess, played by Dane. The scene begins, but from the darkened corner of the set, a hideous face watches with baleful eyes. Just as the terror is about to stab the Countess, the mysterious figure turns off the lights. Confusion and screams of horror fill the darkness. 
When the lights come back on, Dane lies before them, dead, while in the shadows, a ghastly figure grins diabolically. The scene is finished, for death is the director. A week later, after a police investigation finds nothing, Julie visits Bruce and says she's worried because in the next scene, her character is supposed to be killed by the terror. Finally, Bruce decides that, you know, maybe he should possibly do something. <laughs> and when the Batman and Robin arrive at the studio, they find Bentley again being harassed by Brenner and his gang. Our heroes quickly go into action, and after some no-nonsense punching, a few quips, including one about how cowardly criminals are without guns, the Batman corners Brenner and questions him, Batman-style, to get his story before literally kicking him out the door. The Batman questions Bentley about other suspects, who tells him both Walker and Norton had motive. The Batman tells Robin to keep watch at the studio while he visits Walker. The Batman does a search of the home, only to find Walker hanging in a closet. He tries to get Walker to tell him who left him that way, but Walker only utters, Clayface, Clayface, <laughs> before dying, leaving the Batman to wonder if Norton or Todd is the real culprit. Meanwhile, Robin patrols the studio grounds. Seeing a light on in one of the large castle sets, he investigates, only to be attacked by Clayface, a.k.a. the mysterious cloaked knife-wielding figure from earlier in the story. Robin dodges the attack, and Clayface drops the knife. Clayface attacks again, causing Robin to slip and hit his head, knocking him unconscious. Clayface drags Robin's body to the top of one of the castle sets and tosses him to his death in the water below. Thankfully, Batman, who had just arrived back on scene, sees him fall and pulls Robin to safety. The Batman and Robin check out the tower, but find Clayface gone. The next day, the film crew works to film the scene with Julie's death. As the terror approaches Julie, Clayface, who is secluded on the catwalk, pulls back to throw a knife at Julie. Just then, a rope encircles the Clayface's wrist, stopping his throw, and Batman tackles the killer. After a series of blows, Clayface leaps off the catwalk, using a dangling rope to swing down to the stage. But Robin is hot on his heels, jumping on Clayface's back and then delivering a hard left hook as a little payback for earlier. The Batman ties up Clayface, and the film crew gathers. Batman removes the makeup from the killer's face to reveal that Clayface is Basil Carlo. The Batman explains that Carlo was upset that they were remaking one of his old films with someone else as a star. And, quote, he had played so many horror roles in pictures, they had taken possession of his mind and soul. He made himself up as Clayface, which was another one of his old roles, and said about killing people involved with the new movie in the order they died in the film. Carlos swears revenge on the Batman. Bentley tells both of our heroes that they are sensational and should star in movies. The Batman declines, saying that their career is a constant battle against crime and evil while Julie sighs that the Batman is far more awesome than boring old Bruce Wayne. <laughs> if only she knew. <laughs> so I really like the uh, opening splash page here. Yeah. Um, not only is it really intricately detailed, but I also love, from a design standpoint, how it takes your eye from the logo to the introduction to Batman, and then down to Robin and Clayface, and then on to the first panel. Yeah, it's a good layout. It just, and uh, It just carries your eye right down the page. And just their scenery lately has just been really good. Um, oh, yeah. This reminds me of the of the, uh, the tong of the Green Dragon uh -huh. um, set, too, which was – or not set because it's not a play, but you know what I mean, the, uh, yeah. the background. It was really good. 
and I think Robinson gets a lot of credit for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, imagine that's true. Yeah. Um, and even though we have the bat logo is probably going to be here to stay from now on, and we probably don't have to say yay it's here every episode anymore. I'm I'm still happy that it's here. So yeah, it's really awesome to see it up there finally. Yeah, in Detective Comics. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of getting a little, the whole, you know, comparing Robin to Robin Hood thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, I guess I, that's, that's where the name came from. And I, even the outfit, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's not like he runs around with a feather in his cap shooting bow and arrows. So <laughs> it's getting a little old. I think they should, they should just move on from that. But you just don't like the nickname or, well, how they, in every caption, it's like the modern Robin Hood, Robin, the boy wonder or whatever. Oh, okay. It's like, yeah, I guess, but not really in any way whatsoever. <laughs> Really, the only thing he takes from Robin Hood is the name mm-hmm. and then kind of the visual look, I guess, slightly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I guess he's got the whole dashing, daring, whatever. What's that guy's name? Um, Douglas Fairbanks personality, I suppose. But Yeah, but that's I mean, as much from Zorro, too, as true. Hood, so Right. Anyway. But our cap- speaking of Robin, our... our Opening caption tells us that Robin is the only living person known as Batman, or to know that Bruce is Batman. Right. Which I thought was kind of odd wording, and I didn't know if maybe Bruce just snapped the necks of everyone else who found out, or... Sure. Of course. Why not? Yeah, we haven't seen anybody else know his real identity, but yeah, that is kind of funny. The only living person. It's cool to see Julie Madison again. As Uh, an actress, apparently. I really, I just really want to like, um, you know, like like her as a character, but they're just not, you know, giving us anything to like really. Uh, yeah. And it, I hate that they just pull the idea that she's an actress out of nowhere. Well, it yeah. seems like that should have been brought up before. Well, it says but, uh, it says Julie is now a motion picture actress. That's what Bruce says in the beginning. So apparently, she's just decided to do it. Um, <laughs> I guess that's how easy it is. Um, okay. But yeah, you're right. It's like we don't get anything from about her, and she starts out just a victim, and then then she turns into a wannabe Lois Lane. Yeah. Um, which I really don't like. No. Because it just makes it like really impossible to like her if all she's going to do is tell us how lame Bruce is. Right. Um. So I, she doesn't last much longer, I don't think. So I guess it doesn't really matter. But as as like pretty much the only reoccurring female in this in these stories, it'd be nice to have something to latch on to, I guess. So then we get the introduction of Basil Carlo, and Bob Kane said the name Basil Carlo came from Basil Rathbone and Boris Karloff, which right. is pretty obvious since they made no real attempt to disguise that. Right. And for those who don't know, Boris was a was an English actor best known for playing Frankenstein's monster in the 1930s Frankenstein films. And I guess I'm, I never actually heard of Basil Rathbone. That's probably bad on my part, but he was a uh, South African actor known for playing suave villains like uh, Sir Guy of Gisborne in The Adventures of Robin Hood. But these, um, th- this first, well, I shouldn't say the first two pages, pages two and three are a lot like the cat story where Finger just spends two pages lining up all the suspects Yeah. for the story. But even even more even more so than the cat story because this is just all out. Everybody has a reason to hate, right? Yeah. Except except for the one guy who actually ends up being the killer. <laughs> yeah. Who, who comes off as very nice and and cordial. So obviously that was on purpose. But 
Um, yeah, every other person that could be a suspect is just like, I'll get you. Uh, so lots of lots of uh, whodunit options. Um, but speaking of Carlo, his plight of being a, a washed-up actor because, you know, he did something kind of – the fame went to his head basically. That's completely lost in this day and age where people become celebrities and then do ridiculous things and only become bigger celebrities. Yeah. In, you know, in the TMZ age here we're in. so <laughs> Right. Yeah, he could have been quite successful. Yeah. Just a man out of, in the wrong wrong time, I guess. He needs to make a YouTube video, I think. Yeah. And we have Bruce Wayne totally rocking out the smoking jacket at the bottom yeah. of page three. which um, I like that uh, – what's her name here? Uh, Dora, I think. The evil actor. Lorna. Act- oh, Lorna. Lorna. Lorna Dane, yeah. Yeah, I like Lorna. Um, even though you know not much happens with her other than you know she dies, but it's it just seems like we're getting more females lately in these stories, which is kind of cool. Right. Um, we had the cat last episode in Batman number one, and then we've been seeing more Julie, and now we have you know Miss Miss really a really evil actress here. Of course, she dies on the next page. Yes, exactly. So. But I just don't even recall like seeing females in any of the oh, stories okay. we were we were reading before. It seemed like it was all, you know, guys and thugs and villains, you know, trying to get rich and right. And uh, yeah, so there. It's been like that in the Superman stories too, though. I mean, it, it's usually all male crooks. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess it, I guess even in this pre-code era, it wasn't good to have a your hero smacking around a woman. Probably not. No. So yeah, Bruce is all worried. About something soon is gonna, you know, something is gonna happen soon, and then a few days later, he finally shows up on set again. Yeah. There's more, and then we have a, a week jump after the murder, which is even worse. Yep. But he must be very busy. Doing what? I guess maybe he's doing, you know, solving cases that we're not seeing or something <laughs> on the side. Untold Legends of the Batman. There you go. Right, right, right. People have to, at least two or three people have to die before. He could take the time to, to work it into up. his busy schedule. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but page four is the first appearance of Clayface, as far as you know, looking like Clayface. Clayface was inspired by a Lon Chaney the Lon Chaney Senior version version of the Phantom of the Opera in 1925, which I can totally see in these, uh, especially in page four here, where he's right, you know, behind the scenes in the shadows. You know, cackling and rubbing his hands together, um, and it's very much like a this whole you know movie being filmed on a real set. It's very much like a play. Yeah. And you know, the lights go out, and there's all these weird screaming and all that, and the lights come back on, and someone's dead. That's very Phantom of the Opera. So yeah, I like the mood of this initial uh, Clayface scene, where like you can't really see what he looks like. You kind of just see. And he's obviously in the dark, and he's wearing a hat, so all you really see is like the, his eyes peering out of the shadow right. of his face. Very, very creepy. It's very, very creepy. Uh, but I find it interesting that of all the people that are accused of killing uh, Lorna, um, the one guy actually holding the knife over top of her in that scene is not amongst the suspects for some reason. Yeah, yeah. It seems like that would be the first one. Hey, you stabbed her. <laughs> well... Although, if his knife wasn't bloody... True. Because I think I, I thought of that, too, and then I thought, well, his knife wouldn't be bloody. So That's they just, true. But still, yeah. But then a week later... A week later, yeah. 
Bruce finally decides he should do something after we've had a murder and his fiance is on set. Yeah, and we have the uh, first appearance of, or the first time that Julie and Dick Grayson are in the same panel together. Mm-hmm. So we've been kind of making, we made jokes last episode about how Bruce didn't really tell anybody about Dick, even his fiance, and yet <laughs> here they are standing in the same room, and, and you know she's not going, who the heck are you? So Dick he, looks rather annoyed in that panel, too. He does, like, like you know, stupid dame, what do you care about? You know, why are you so worried about getting killed? <laughs> but I like how um, I like how Bruce tells Julie not to worry because the killer probably only wanted Lorna dead when he has absolutely no way of knowing this, given that he's done no investigation whatsoever. And between this and the monk story, where you know he had a bad feeling but sent her to Hungary anyway. They're just doing a horrible job of making me believe that Bruce cares for his fiance. Yeah, he uh, he really doesn't. I mean, he could just be telling her that to like make her feel better. I'm, I'm sure that right, kill, I'm but, sure that killer only wanted to kill Lorna. He doesn't want to kill you, honey. But it's been a week. He's not done anything. Yeah. You know, so it's. Well, he waits till her scene comes up and she's in jeopardy before he does anything. So that's like pretty much using her as bait again. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Yeah. But it does lead to the nice uh, panel. The next panel there where Bruce is very resolved. Yes. I would have liked to have seen that earlier, but it still, at least it finally does come. Yeah. It's a cool shadow on the wall too. Yeah. Um, and then the next panel is he and Robin going out as you know, and it, once again, it refers to Batman as the dark Knight. Right. Um, they both have nicknames now. It's very cool. Yeah, I guess funny that the they start calling him the Dark Knight after he becomes started much, smiling. Yeah, yes, he becomes much less dark, and that's when they come up with the Dark Knight. That's <laughs> that's interesting to me. Uh, but look at the size of the uh, bat symbol on his chest in that panel. Yeah, very cool. It, go, it goes like all the way across his chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. Um, the fight scene is pretty cool between. Uh, the dynamic duo and this uh, would-be gangster guy. Yeah. I mean, at least when Bruce finally does go into action, he's all business about it. Just mm-hmm. punch, punch, punch. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that Robin is uh, – so we were just – someone that – whoever just emailed us uh, – I forget your name already, sorry. Um, uh, was it Calvin or Jared uh, that we should do a count on how many times Batman gets knocked in the back of the head? That was Jared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jared. It's nice uh, that – Robin has his back here, at least. Yes. And uh, takes the guy out with, I guess, a trash can lid or something. Um, that was yeah, I don't know cool. what that is. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. I, I actually noticed that this whole page has no background, except for the stairs. Steps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm attacked by an elf. <laughs> I yeah. love that line. Yeah, that was very funny. Yeah, they still don't really know who Robin is, so that's cool. Right. Um, but uh, Batman seems to know who... Roxy. Roxy is. Yeah, I'm not sure how he knew his name, mm-hmm. because Bruce and Dick, or Bruce and Dick, Bruce and Julie were already gone when he showed up on set. Mm-hmm. Well, they were on their way out, but um. So it's I either kinda, it's either a writer slip up or or we could just infer that Batman knows his criminals. Yeah, that's what I like to think. He keeps tabs on the more questionable characters in town. Mm-hmm. I like how he just kicks him in the butt at the end too. Like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's just not worth his time. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah, too he's small. Small definitely time. Definitely no nonsense. Right. And you get the idea this Roxy guy isn't really 
all that awesome because he's he's using the Clayface's murder to you know, he's taking credit for a murder he didn't even do to try and extort some money, so yeah. he's, a, he's obviously just a weasel. Right. You might as well just kick him in the butt and, and go about your business, I guess. He's superstitious and cowardly. Yeah. On uh, page seven, we get uh, start off with more what I like to call now bat back. Bat back. I mean, it's just the same back over and over again all the time. Yeah. Um, but I I do very much like the panel underneath it. That's the oh, kind of mm-hmm. that's the kind of silhouette I like to see. I, I, that doesn't have any shortcuts in it at all. I mean, that's really cool. Right. It is all silhouettes again. It is, but it's you know they at least had to take the time to render you know the couch and the door and the right and the uh, where the light's coming from and all that stuff. It's not just him all by himself in a panel being blacked out. Um, Batman's car looks. A little, do you think Batman's car looks more decorative here, or am I just insane? Uh, the hood looks pretty um, detailed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's still no you know bat motif on it, but it just I feel like they're kind of putting a little more effort into that. That kind of thing. His tires are red, too. But that could just be a miscolor. It's hard to tell with color in these Golden Age stories. Yeah. Especially when you're involving reprints and, and you know. Yeah, I'm looking at the reprint. They're colored gray in the reprint. but um, Yeah. In, uh, we're kind of skipping around here, but going back to that panel you liked with him going in the door, mm-hmm. it says he's using a pass key, which I assume is like a skeleton key. Mm-hmm. And it's cool to see Batman having such a gadget with him. But I really wouldn't have minded if he just picked the lock too. So, either way would have worked. Yeah. But again, it's another another little gadget. That's pretty neat. I think it's really cool on page eight that. Uh, uh, well, first of all, I think it's it's. I don't know why I think it's cute, but Robin just walking around the stairs with a lantern <laughs> is is funny to me. Um, kind of just goes along with the the whole castle set, yeah. I guess. Maybe that's where he got the lantern. I don't know, but um, but I really like how. You know, Clayface pops out of nowhere and <laughs> attempts to stab him, and he easily just, like, knocks the idiot on his face. I really like that. Yeah. Well, he just ducks, so he re- you really can't take any credit for that. Oh, heck yeah, you can, because you could have just got stabbed in the face. <laughs> that's what I, that's what would have happened to me if he uh, if he had done that to me. Okay, yeah. Um, but, his, but his cool points get taken away on the next page when he is, once again, attacked and knocked unconscious and captured by the villain. Well, and not only that, but he trips over the lamp we were just talking about. So, right. So yeah. here, here I go, you know, patting him on the back for being all agile and and, <laughs> and ducking fast. And then the next panel, he he trips over his own stuff. But apparently, Clayface has not been reading uh, the past issues we've been reading because I know at this point not to toss anybody into water <laughs> because the uh, yeah. the startling cold will just wake them up and then they'll be okay. But thankfully, Batman came back, even though he had other suspects to investigate. He came back to the to the set, which didn't make any sense to me. But yeah, maybe he just wanted to check in on Robin first. Probably a good idea. <laughs> Apparently, it was a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He pulls him out, and um, that last panel there. Um, I know it wasn't intended that way, but I prefer to read Robin's line in the last panel where he's you know dripping wet, just full of angry sarcasm, like. What hit me? Oh, yeah. The monster you left me here to be killed by, you jerk. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because we have, we have um, really, we have Batman leaving Robin to do the dangerous thing while he goes off to do something less dangerous. Right, right. Yeah, he keeps Robin at the actual scene of the murder. Right. Um, 
And this page, uh, so the next page, page 10, I guess, um, where they're looking around for Clayface, and then, you know, he, of course, disappears. And then Batman says, probably surveying the scene for his next murder. Clayface. I wonder if... And then, so right there, you know, Batman has solved the crime and right. figured it all out. But he's been doing these, I wonder if, sentences a lot lately. <laughs> And to me, it's kind of like, it might be cool. I mean, it's kind of cool, I guess, but it might be kind of cooler to actually see him reach a conclusion once in a while. Right. Um, rather than waiting until after it's all over and then telling us, oh, yeah, I totally knew that, you know. Um, see, well, seeing him do any detective work at all would be nice. Yeah. I mean, here he goes to see one suspect, and then the next thing you know, he's got it solved. So it's... And considering he saw um, all the suspects that we saw at the beginning right. of the story, except for Roxy, which who he's already beaten up. Right. Um, you would think there'd be a lot more to choose from. Yeah. I guess what was the point of setting up all these different people? And then he doesn't investigate any of them really, but right. Yeah. Um, but then they finally, uh, find Clayface again, who is indeed going to do another murder. This time, uh, he's going to kill Julie, which we can't have. So I like this fight. It was up on the rafters. Uh, yeah, it was a very nice fight. Even though um, I had a note, it looks like Bob Kane is using kind of a more rigid layout now, which is to square panels, but it's mm-hmm. still a very, very good fight. Yeah, and I like the shot of Robin, you know, jumping over the railing and, you know, flying down to mm-hmm. to, to land on the swinging clay face. Yeah. Because anytime they do a like a camera angle that isn't straight on, it really stands out to me because they don't do that very often. Right. Um, so that looks really cool. It's like a bird's eye shot of him jumping down. But Clayface is pretty agile for an old guy. Mm-hmm. That's true. Because <laughs> you got to figure uh, Carlo is, you know... I, I kind of get the impression that he's in his 50s at least, maybe even older. Yeah. And here he is leaping off of balconies and swinging on ropes and... Well, he, you know, he did his own stunts. <laughs> yeah. I guess. I, they probably all did back then. Um, but it was nice that for once we have a, a villain uh, get revealed and we actually... Um, care who the identity is yeah even though the ending is a little scooby-doo like oh very and i like the uh you know batman really in in um assumes a lot in his <laughs> right exclamation exp- explanation of of why it takes him four panels to do three right panels yeah like why basil did what he did it's like really why don't you just ask basil what he did <laughs> why he did what he did um, um i like the uh that last little line when they ask him if if Batman and Robin want to be actors. Yeah. Sorry, our career is a constant battle against crime and evil. Yes. That yeah. was very, that was very Adam West sounding. Yeah. To me. Oh, definitely. I liked it. It's like, you can't say that straight, but unless, <laughs> unless you're Adam West. But overall, I thought this was, you know, it was an okay story. I wasn't really blown away with it. It was right. like, we talked about it. It was a mystery, but we really didn't see Batman doing much to solve it. No. And I, I really want to see him out picking up clues and deciphering them and uh, deducing things. He just he just visits the one the one suspect and the rest is off panel. And that was that was kind of the same with the cat story of Laps episode where Right. We had all these options and then he kinda of just listens to Robin tell a story and then goes, Oh, I know exactly what's going on. Part of the letdown too might be uh stem from the fact that Batman's major villains so far have all had strong Debuts, you know, the Hugo Strange story, the Joker, the Catwoman, 
or the cat. Um, of the of the big rogues that have de- you know debuted so far, I think this is my least favorite story. And really, he's the most different from what I think of when I think of Clayface. Right. That, and that's probably what it is. I mean, I don't think of this guy at all when I think of Clayface. You know, and I no. and I, and I doubt most modern, at least, Batman fans do either. Because even this guy, I think he will show up again in the in the Golden Age. Maybe. I think there's only one more Golden Age story with him. Yeah, one more time, but then he does get come back in the modern age and he uh, actually gets powers. So even even this, you know, powerless guy doesn't last very long. Um, But there have been. Let me find that one second. But I just looked it up just because, yeah, like you said, it doesn't. He doesn't really feel like the Clayface we know and love, and so there's actually been. A total of eight clay faces in uh, wow in the comics, including this guy. Um, so the second one was introduced in 1961. It was named Matt Hagen, and he was a treasure hunter who finds a radioactive pool in a cave. And after immer- immersing himself in it, he becomes malleable like clay. Um, so that's not really the shape-changing guy either. I think that's more like a guy who can just turn his face into different things. Um, and then in 1975, there was Preston Payne who used, uh, the second clay face, Matt Hagen's blood in an attempt to cure himself of, I'm going to say this wrong, probably hyper pituitaryism, um, and gains Hagen's abilities temporarily only to find that he starts melting and anything he touches begins to melt too. So he has to create like this exosuit for himself. And, um, yeah, that sounds fun. And then in 1987, uh, some lady named Sandra Fuller becomes Lady Clay, and she was created by this evil organization called Strike Force Cobra, um, because apparently she hated her face and wanted a way to change it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And in 1998, uh, Sandra Fuller and Preston Payne, the third and fourth Clay Faces, had themselves a baby named Cassius Payne. And in 1998, also a guy named Dr. Peter Malley turns into clay thing after coming across that that love child i was just talking about and getting infected by a skin sample and then in 2002 a completely unrelated clay face shows up named todd russell who was experimented on in the army and lost all memory of his former life but gained the ability to shape change to anything and use that to prey on prostitutes in gotham's east end until he was stopped by catwoman and then in 2005, another unrelated Clayface named Johnny Williams uh, showed up, who was a former firefighter who gained his abilities after being caught in an explosion at a chemical plant. And hmm. yeah, yeah, I said that was 2005, even though it sounds like 1960. <laughs> uh, I had no idea there were so many Clayfaces. Yeah. I knew there was a lot, but uh, it looks like there's been a lot up here in the last uh, couple couple decades that I wasn't aware of. And that's just comics. Then he shows up in other media, and not to go into all that too much, but the one I'm most familiar with is the animated series. Um, and they use the name Matt Hagen for that guy, who was the second Clayface. But that guy also was a past-his-prime actor. So in some ways, they at least they paid a little nod to Basil here. Um, but in that, in that universe, he was a past-his-prime actor who gets disfigured... And yeah, so it's kind of a combination of multiple clay faces, really. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, not 
not necessarily. I mean, Batman. So far, we've kind of had the luxury of every time a new character gets introduced, it's pretty much the way we expect those characters to be. Right. But not so much with Basil Carlo, I guess. This seems as good a place as any to mention that it seems Bill Finger also did some writing for film and television. According to his Wikipedia page, he co-wrote a couple films, including one called The Green Slime and another called Track of the Moon Beast, which were both mystery science theater fodder. But he also wrote episodes of TV shows Hawaiian Eye and 77 Sunset Strip, as well as a two-part episode of the Adam West Batman series wow. that featured the Clock King. That is very cool. So we'll be able to cover that eventually. Yeah. If you are interested in reading this appearance of the very first Clayface, it's been reprinted three times. First in Batman from the 30s to the 70s. That was a hardcover. And then we had Batman Archives Volume 1 and Batman Chronicles Volume 2. Okay. So other features in this book we have next up is a uh, the one-page advertisement for Batman number one that we saw last episode. Um, and then after that we have a six-page Bart Regan spy story called The Forgarian Ball by Jerry Siegel and Maurice Kashuba. We have eight pages of Red Logan, not six, wow. not six, called... An American Reporter in London by Ken Ernst. We have six pages of The Crimson Avenger called The Mysterious Rays by Jack Letty. And then we have a two-page ad. I don't always cover ads, but sometimes they stick out to me, and it's kind of funny. But it's called – it's a Popsicle Pete ad, and it's telling kids to save their Pete's Popsicle bags and redeem them at their nearest Popsicle service station for a uh, free, like – toy i guess uh the likes of which included a dartboard a watch ladies pantyhose uh camera etc and of course the cooler the item ladies pantyhose or toys yeah see that's why i was weird that's what (laughs) that's what kind of stood out to me um yeah so the cooler the item the more bags you have to collect yeah Hmm. that's kind of funny plus just the idea of a popsicle service station it's like what the heck is that um Anyway, after that is a six-page Speed Saunders Ace Investigator story called The Jewel Robbers by Gardner Fox and Fred Gardiner. We have a two-page text piece by Gardner Fox called Theft at the Fair. And I kind of noticed that for the first time, this uh, text piece is just riddled with advertisements um, (laughs) for fireworks, bicycle shock absorbers, roller skates, um, some job where you can earn $3.50 a week by typing, and that's three dollars and fifty cents a week. Right, three dollars yeah. and fifty cents a week, which is probably a lot. And uh, Doctor Fate is in Morphon Comics, in case you don't already know that. Um, but yeah, it looks like they're going to start using these these oblig- obligatory uh, text pieces to at least rake in some money. Um, then we have six pages of Steve Malone, District Attorney, by Don Lynch, called The Prodigy. We have another advertisement for the Superman radio ad, uh, which tells you what stations carry it. And then also above that, there is a ad for Superman number five, the summer issue, which is on sale May 10th for 10 whole cents at all newsstands. And then we have six pages of Cliff Crosby, the called the new plane by Chad Grothkoff and only eight pages of slam Bradley. Wow. I guess 
his pages got taken by Red Logan, um, <laughs> called The Murder of Slugger Carmen by Jerry Siegel and Howard Sherman. And even though he's even though he's missing two pages, we do have a cool opening finally again. Well, I don't know if it's cool, but it is an opening. And it's Slam and Shorty witness a murder, and Shorty exclaims, Look, Slam, a cold-blooded murder. And Slam replies, And here's where I knock those killers cold. Well, that's better than the last few. Yeah, which has been nothing. So Slam's getting his groove back. Yep. And then the one-page big six ad that we've been talking about lately is also in this book. And that's it. Cool. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. So, on to our second issue tonight. It's called, I guess, the New York World's Fair 1940 edition. Or number two, I guess, if you want to just go that way. I don't think there's an official number on either one of the World's Fair issues. I think it's just the the 1940 issue and the 1939 issue. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but there's only two of them. The cover date is simply 1940. It was on sale May 11th of 1940 with a cover price of 15 cents. And it was edited by Whitney Ellsworth. The cover, which was drawn by Jack Burnley features Superman, Batman, and Robin standing in front of a big circle and triangle, which represents the Trilon and Perisphere from the World's Fair. And uh, Batman and Robin and Superman are all smiling, and Superman has his hand held in the air as if he's waving to the crowd, and there's a big caption that says, 96 thrilling pages in full color. I love this cover. Yeah, it's a very cool cover. And I know I'm probably biased, over the excitement of seeing Superman and Batman together for the, you know, quote unquote first time, but I just love how they're all so happy and smiley. <laughs> yeah. it, all all the characters look great. It just I, great iconic depictions of all three of them. Yeah, this is the first time that they've shared anything together. I think mm-hmm. other, other than an advertisement, um, they don't share stories unfortunately, but but they are on the cover. And also, this is the first time Jack Burnley has drawn at least Batman. I, I don't know about Superman, but. Um, well, Burnley does the Superman story inside the book, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that this this book, you know, as an entirety, is the first time he drew either character, and he'll go on to do um, quite a few stories for both. Interesting that that uh, it's almost like both styles are represented on this cover, as far as you know, Bob Kane and Joe Schuster, you know. Yeah. Whereas today, if an artist was going to draw all three of these characters, he would do his own style. Yeah, the the Robin. 
really does look like a Bob Kane. Mm-hmm. Batman a little less. Yeah. And I think Superman looks less like a, a Joe Schuster than the Batman does uh, Bob Kane. But but yeah, they. But he doesn't look like the same style as Batman and Robin either. So. No. No. So it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool that they're still retaining their their artistic. Right. I guess look at this point as if they were you know cartoon characters or something where. Bugs Bunny always looks like Bugs Bunny. Right. Or whatever. It, it's also interesting to compare this cover to the 1939 issues cover because there uh, the main image was just this uh, cartoonish looking child. And the, the the features inside the book were little circles down the side. But here, you know, their two biggest or three biggest heroes are front and center. Mm-hmm. You know, right. So the companies yeah. are catching on that, that these characters sell. Yep. Above generic stuff. Yep, they know who pay the bills. Yeah. So Batman is, or Batman and Robin, I should say now, are the last feature in this story. They saved the best for last, of course. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the first thing they got is a one-page, um, I guess this is an intro. It's not really an ad because it's the same book, but it's it's uh, it says, officially licensed New York World's Fair comics. 1940 and it shows a bunch of you know different looking characters like uncle sam and some uh you know some guy of asian persuasion and maybe russian or dutch or something eskimo and yeah all these different characters kind of holding hands and and like skipping around the earth and the earth has you know a flag kind of actually there's like clouds behind the earth and there's a flag american flag coming out of it and then um on top of the earth is that same triangle and and square uh, uh, Trilon and Perisphere representation, which I guess was the known as the theme center. Yeah, um, that was that was kind of the uh, the symbol of the fair, the icon, the, the you know the Trilon and the Perisphere. Right, right. And this piece of art was actually used in the 1939 comic as well. Oh, was it? Okay. Then start us off right. We have ten pages of Superman by Jerry Siegel and Jack. Burnley pretending to be Joe Schuster uh, or ghost writing or ghost drawing, I guess for Joe Schuster. And it's called Superman at the 1940s world fair and not to knock Joe Schuster, but I just, I didn't read this story, but I kind of skimmed through it a little bit and his lowest lane is pretty good. This Jack Burnley guy. Yeah. Um, they were starting to make Lois a lot more uh, fashionable at mm-hmm. this point. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have, Eight pages of a, I guess a team called Red, White, and Blue by Jerry Siegel and Harry Hampert called The War Games. We have four pages of Hanko the Cowhand by Craig Flessel. Ten pages of Slam Bradley by Jerry Siegel and Howard Sherman. Uh, ten pages of Zatara the Master Magician by Gardner Fox and Joseph and Joseph Solman. Then we have... Uh, a text piece that's four pages long called The Fairfax About the 1940 New York World's Fair. And it's by Raymond Perry. And it talks about all the latest attractions you can see at the fair. Uh, and then a one-page comic uh, strip called Silly Stuff by Henry Boltonoff. We have six pages of The Hour Man by Ken Fitch and Bernard Bailey. Another one-page comic strip called Catnip by Fred Schaub. Eight pages of what's called At the World's Fair with Jim and Jane. 
who um, I do not believe are established characters or anything, but it's just some attempted. Mm, no, that 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 was a, a strip done for the 1939 comic, mm-hmm. and then they reprinted it. Okay, so it's just like an attempt to show you what you can do at the fair again. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's by Craig Flessel. And then we have one page of Speeding Sam, the Taxi Man, by, and that's another humor strip. That's by Paul Gustafson. And then we have 10 pages of The Sandman by Gardner Fox and Chad Grothkoff. We have one page of Fantastic Facts by George Papp. And did you know that half of the world is so unfit for man to live in that it contains less than 10 million people, less than the population of New York City? And did you know that Colin Tapley landed his plane backwards he was flying 40 miles per hour into a 55-mile-per-hour gale in England in 1930. And did you know that when a tree is newly felled, only one half of its weight is wood? The rest is sap and moisture. <laughs> and did you know that the blue Danube rises in the Black Forest, empties in the Black Sea, and is mostly yellow? <laughs> I was not aware of that. but Me neither. Now I know. See? Comics are good, teachers. Mm-hmm. All right. After that bit of knowledge we have six pages of johnny thunderbolt by john b wentworth and stan ashmeyer ashmeyer we have one page of the humorous ginger snap by bob kane and that brings us to why we're all here for this episode we have 13 pages of batman and robin visit the 1940 new york world's fair script by bill finger Pencils and Inks by Bob Kane and George Russo. And our story starts out with a big caption that reads, Wealth, lust for power, these are the roots of evil that tend to plant themselves in man's heart and mind. Crime, havoc, and destruction, these are the fruits. Once again, it remains for the Batman and Robin, the boy wonder, to pit their amazing skills against one who would become a king of crime, a king of evil. This is... The man who turns steel to dust. Among those walking the vast grounds of the World's Fair are Bruce Wayne and young Dick Grayson, who are in reality Batman and Robin, the boy wonder. As Bruce and Dick wander the fair, admiring its gigantic stupendousness, a few miles away, the West River Bridge suddenly begins to crumble and plunges into the waters below. Moments later, as Bruce and Dick wander into a large radio exhibit, they hear the news over one of the radio displays. Bruce decides that bridges don't just crumble every day and sends Dick off to the site to investigate while he himself heads to Commissioner Gordon's office as Bruce Wayne. While Bruce cleverly attempts to glean as much information as he can from Gordon through casual chatter, a man suddenly rushes into Gordon's office, identifying himself as Travers from Travers Engineering, and tells the commissioner he just received a letter which reads, The destruction of the West Bridge is a warning and proof of what I can do. Either pay me $300,000, or your new bridge under construction will meet the same fate. Instructions will follow. Commissioner Gordon advises Travers to ignore the letter, telling him that nobody can destroy a bridge. But Bruce wonders to himself whether the bridge really, really was destroyed by the writer of the letter. Meanwhile, Dick arrives at the site of the former bridge, ready to see if he can dig up anything important, when suddenly he spies a woman being chased by two men. The men catch the woman, and one is about to slap her when Dick intervenes and knocks the two guys on their butt. During the fight, the mystery woman escapes, and the two men Dick trounced 
tell them they are detectives. They are detectives, and that Dick just helped a crook escape their custody. Not entirely convinced that the two men were detectives, Dick heads home and reports what happened to Bruce, who decides they should wait for something else to happen before they make their next move. Two days later, the Traverse Bridge indeed falls to the same fate as the first bridge, its steel crumbling to dust, and in the morning paper, the front headline reads, Engineer Company Threatened, Half-Constructed Bridge by Flavin Company Menaced, $500,000 is price asked by writer and letter of letter to avert destruction. Police are mystified. Bruce decides that's, that's something enough and tells Robin they are going out to investigate the Flavin Bridge. And moments later, the moon looks down on a weird but now familiar sight. Batman and Robin, the boy wonder, sweep into action once more. When the duo arrive on the scene, they find it littered with henchmen. Batman decides to play a little baseball, Batman style, and takes care of the cronies below, picking up one over his head and pitching him into the others. Meanwhile, Robin takes on the villains above by climbing up the bridge cables and tossing them below for Batman to finish off. With the bad guys taken care of, the two examine a curious box the thugs were attempting to plant on the bridge, having no clue what to make of it, when suddenly the mysterious woman Robin saved earlier appears with all the answers. It seems she lived with her uncle, a man named Dr. Vreekill, who, one night, showed her his latest invention, a ray he developed that turns steel to dust by emitting energy from a machine he calls a sender, and having it channeled through the box Batman and Robin discovered which acts as a receiver for the energy. The woman then tells Batman she fears her uncle has gone mad with power, and that after he started gathering an army of crooks, she decided to escape, but only after she figured out his plans, which is to free prisoners from the state prison to make his army even bigger, and then to blow up the half-finished monarch building. Having heard what they needed, Batman and Robin rush off for the prison, as the prisoners use personal receiver boxes smuggled in for them by Dr. Vreekill to crumble, crumble their steel bars and turn the guards' steel guns to dust. But just as they think they're about to get away, the bat plane arrives on the scene, emitting a gas over the prison yard that knocks most of the escaped prisoners out. Batman then lands the plane and he and Robin take out the remaining stragglers, tying them up and leaving them for the police as they once again jump into the bat plane and rush off to the Monarch building. Once there, Batman puts the bat plane on autopilot, and he and Robin lower themselves down in the ladder, jumping into the group of henchmen gathered on the top floor of the unfinished building. As Batman paves his way through the villains, Robin goes after the one with the box, but as he gets near, the man throws the box at Robin, hitting him in the head and causing him to fall. Batman quickly grabs onto a hanging cable and swings across the girders, catching Robin before he can plummet to his death. Robin then returns the favor by slinging a rock at a bad guy before he can get the drop on Batman. The henchmen beaten, the building saved, Batman and Robin climb back into the Batplane and head to the laboratory of Dr. Vreekill, where Batman easily dispatches the power-hungry scientist with a left hook. Rather than being taken to jail, however, Vreekill reaches out to one of his machines, grabbing hold of an open wire and electrocuting himself. Shedding no tears, the two heroes return to the World's Fair, hoping they get to see the rest of it without being interrupted by another incident. They then turn to us, the reader, and suggests that if we want to see something that not only educates, but has just as many thrills as one of their adventures, that we should go visit the fair too. The end. I want to go to the fair. It does sound pretty cool. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's there anymore. No, no, it long been torn down and scrapped for the war effort. So 
Yep. Uh, but we start off with a kind of a cool. I mean, I don't know what to make this. It's like obviously they're doing this story to promote the fair. Right. So it's not like we we don't we don't get the usual start to these stories where we see like a cool scene from the story and you know Batman and Robin being dynamic. Instead, we see Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson walking around at the fair. Yeah. Which is the point. Um, so it's, I can't say it's like a great splash because it's just them walking around at the fair, but. You know, it's kind of cool. I like seeing them out together, though, just yeah. having a good time, relaxing in their civilian mm-hmm. identities. Mm-hmm. I think Dick looks a weird, little weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, like he's been uh, doing, you know, a few too many uh, pull-ups or something. Yeah, right, exactly. But it is the first time we've seen Dick in a red sweater. Yeah. Which is a very iconic look for Dick Grayson. Fact, it, it seems to me, maybe not. This is the first time we've seen them just... Walking around together, isn't it? Like out, to, yeah, I think so. Yeah, usually they're either as Batman and Robin, or he's sending Dick off to do his own thing, or yeah. So that's kind of cool. But this whole fair thing kind of reminds me of uh, the Mask of the Phantasm. Did you ever see that movie? Oh yeah. Yeah, or remember where he goes to like I think it's called the Gotham World's Fair or something Gotham like that. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, not that anything in here happens, but I guess just I don't, the setting. You just mean? the setting, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think in that movie, the only thing that came out of that was he saw like a futuristic car that was clearly like the inspiration for the Batmobile. Right. Um, but we do finally have Bruce jumping right into action when something bad happens. He just go, you know. For now, yeah. For now, well, for now. We have to we have to cherish it while we have it here on this page, page yes, two. Right, right. Yeah, he goes there in the uh, what do they call it? The radio exhibit. Yeah. I wonder if there really was a radio exhibit. I don't know, but I would say probably, you know, if these were done to promote the fair, then they probably were true referencing actual exhibits. Yeah. I like Bruce's um, line in that last panel, though. Uh, you scout over the bridge, and I'll visit my good friend, Police Commissioner Gordon, as Bruce Wayne, Wall Street Playboy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it's just the part he plays, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we haven't really seen too much distinction between Bruce and Batman at this point. I mean, we have some, I guess, but usually when we see Bruce, he's Batman wearing Bruce's clothes. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. He's got the personality of Batman. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, Batman's not very brooding at this point, especially now. Right, right. Um, But we also just don't see a lot of Bruce, so... I mean, outside of when he's trying to use the identity to get something. Right, with with Gordon, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nice to see Commissioner Gordon again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even though he really jumps to a – he jumps the gun a bit, I think, saying that the bridge was faulty. Cause it, it, it just happened, and there's been little, if any, investigation <laughs> on it. So. Well, he just can't wrap his head around the idea that someone could <laughs> just turn the bridge to dust. I mean, come on. Yeah. That stuff doesn't happen. Uh, he needs to fight the ultra-humanite. Batman does, I think. I think it. I think it was maybe just a writing device to make it so that the police don't. Well, yeah, I know that. But don't stake out the uh, this guy's bridge because otherwise the thugs won't be able to do their business there. I guess I don't know. I'm not really sure what Bruce is gonna get from going to Commissioner Gordon's office anyway. It seems like Dick's assignment is gonna pay off much better. But once again, he sends Dick to do the dangerous thing while he that's right goes and goofs off with something. Mostly, right. Most likely unrelated. So That's right. <laughs> but I love seeing Dick uh, 
beat the snot out of these guys. Yeah. Um, in his civilian clothes again, no less. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good fight. Mm-hmm. It's cool to see, because I think in Batman number one we saw on the boat in for uh, the cat story. Right. He just starts fighting instead of you know having to sneak off and changing a Robin first or whatever. Um, yeah, you you can totally tell. You can you can see how young kids reading the book at the time would have really enjoyed Robin being there, because you know he just gets to beat up bad guys and and then be saved by Batman. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the idea that you you can fight as good as Batman because Batman taught you how to fight. You know, right? I, I actually almost enjoy watching Robin fight in these stories more than Batman, just because. It just seems really cool. Um, and conversely, like on my Captain America show, Bucky pretty much just gets kidnapped all the time. Or, <laughs> you know, he doesn't do this kind of action because I guess you can't teach a kid how to be a super soldier. But No. Um, yeah, I always, I've always liked the idea that Robin just, I don't know if he knows everything Batman knows, but he knows enough to, to be very dangerous. So. Oh, but I learned something on page five because mm-hmm. I learned that the stir is apparently slang for prison. Oh, so. Yeah, yeah. These guys weren't very convincing. No. Oh I mean, no. They're about to slap a girl, which is <laughs> not really. Um, they didn't arrest Robin or Dick for interfering or anything. Right. Um, they didn't even show their him badges or you know. Yeah, it's pretty obvious that they're just lying. But I kind of like that idea though. Yeah. Until we get more, um, you know, lazy Batman. Well, let's just wait for something to happen. Yeah, he has. He knows what bridge is threatened next. Yeah. And they also have a ransom letter with that says that there's going to be more instructions to follow that he doesn't really investigate either. <sighs> In fact, they never really talk about what the instructions to follow are going to be. No. Uh-uh. Uh, they just skip right over that. Yeah. So that's, again, it's like, you know, two people being murdered. Okay. Batman will get involved. And it's the same thing here. Like two bridges got destroyed. Okay. <laughs> it's time for Batman to get involved now. I guess I'll have to go solve this. Yeah. <laughs> I have so many Joker problems right now. <laughs> uh, we and then we see Batman using his trunk again, which we haven't seen in several uh, stories. And it makes me wonder if Robin has a trunk as well, or if they just have to share. <laughs> that would be cool. A little, a little like an exact replica, but smaller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, it's just uh, it's like I really want to see like more about where this where Bruce Wayne lives because all we ever see is like a room with a right. lamp, with a lamp and a chair and a, you know and I and I know you know we only got so many pages we can't spend them all with big splash pages of his house yeah. but yeah we just want to know more though yeah it's like what where is he living is it just a, a condo or is it a a big uh, you know mansion or what is it so. Page six, we have Batman picking up a guy by his belt and tossing him baseball style. Mm-hmm. I don't care how awesome Batman is, he shouldn't be that strong. Well, I don't know. I was just watching a YouTube video the other day where this guy was picking people up and seeing how far he could toss them. So I guess it's possible. Yeah. I mean, Were they picking them up like this, though? Like by their belt buckle? Well, he's... I don't know how how he was grabbing them by their pants or something, but he was just easily lifting them over his head and throwing them across the lawn. Not one-handed, though, so maybe that's the difference. But <laughs> but I do like that Batman's having a lot more fun these days. Yeah. The baseball stuff. and Although, really, he's I think he's more like bat bowling, personally, if you want to get picky. But 
Um, I liked seeing uh, the reference to Dick Grayson's circus life, though. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I like that reference rather than them just making him, you know, really good at doing stuff. They actually keep it giving us a reason why he's so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides being trained by Batman, of course. But yeah, yeah, he used to practice a tightrope. Makes perfect <laughs> sense. It's cool, um, and also that explains why he wouldn't be scared of the heights either, because right. That's what he used to do. But that one guy should be dead, though. Um, when he punches on the way as he's falling, yeah. <laughs> it shows a Tweety Bird, so we assume that he's just sleeping, but yeah. Uh, Robin Batman, just, Batman Robin, doesn't kill anymore, allegedly. Robin takes this guy off the top of a bridge and just tosses him down to Batman, and Batman punches him in the face. And like the guy's neck looks like... As he's falling, yeah. It looks like his head is backwards or something. <laughs> Or bent completely backwards. Yeah. It's cool, though. But then, uh, at this point, Batman's... The fins on Batman's gloves, just they just disappear. Until the towards the end of the story, they come back. Oh, that's weird. Uh, yeah. Huh. Because they've, they've been... They've been better at keeping his costume consistent over the last few stories. Oh, sure. But but it could be that there's a new inker on this, on this story, too. George well, Russo's. You know what's interesting is the... The black line that denotes the end of his glove. Um, on page on page eight, it doesn't seem like it's even there. So I'm wondering if they even forgot to give him gloves, and the colorist had to just cover their. It could be. That happens sometimes, I think. But but I, I just imagine this lady going around because she apparently knows the entire the entirety of her uncle's plan. Yeah. Every every bridge he wants to attack and all that. So I I just imagine her going from bridge to bridge, like trying to stop <laughs> us and and failing yeah. miserably because so far she's been at a two out of three anyway. Yeah. So she's looking her... for Batman. True. Maybe. Yeah, she's like, finally you get involved. Where the heck have you been? On a uh, storytelling note, they use a little arrow that goes from the present day into the flashback, mm-hmm. and it says the girl's story. Mm-hmm. And it, that's you know, comics are still relatively new at this point, so it's interesting seeing the different methods the artists use to yeah. hand, handle flashbacks and other narrative devices. Yeah, I like that. I mean, nowadays they probably just color it all gray or something like that. Right. Uh, or they put little squiggly lines around it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or have you know Wayne and Garth go <laughs> by. <laughs> 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 but yeah, Anne seems very comfortable around the Batman. She yeah. just comes up and starts talking to him. So I like it. Are you the Batman, aren't you? It'd be awesome if you just said no. <laughs> Where'd you get that idea? <laughs> I'm just I'm just sweeping the bridge, lady. I <laughs> but I I did a little research on Hugo Vrekill because oh, I yeah? think that's the Vrekill is a great name for a villain. Mm-hmm. And apparently, when I did a Google search, I only got two hits for the name. the bat, This Batman story, and then there was a Shadow story published Uh-oh. in March 15, 1939. It was called The Vindicator, which includes a Vrekill castle. Oh. And that's the only two hits I got on Google for I that bet, name. I bet that's where they got it. Yeah. Because they were fans of the Shadow, or at least Finger was. Um, that's cool. It is a very cool name. Yeah, it's very, very mad scientist. Uh, but you notice that uh, what is her name? Does she have a name? Yeah. Anne. Is her name Anne really? Where does it say that? I think I saw that in your notes, but I I couldn't find. Oh, right there, Anne. At last, I've done it. Okay. 
Yep. Oh, yeah, right there. Okay. There's, I knew yeah. I'd read it somewhere. I wouldn't have yeah. just made that up, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anne likes the same outfit. You notice that? <laughs> yeah. But, well, you know. Dick, too, because at the end uh, of the story, they're wearing the same outfits they were wearing at the beginning. That's true. It's been several days, so. And at least in Anne's case, you could guess that she's just been running this whole time and right. didn't have time to pack or something. But, yeah, her, her uncle, uh, I don't know, like he either is completely insane and actually thinks that she wants to hear this stuff or <laughs> – or she's he's under some impression that she would go along with it, or yeah. Well, they're family. He probably wants her to join yeah. the family business. Yeah, that's the family business, right? <laughs> oh, but I love this uh, like description of the. I, I'm not quite sure I get exactly how his his thing works here, but like, does he feed the energy from home base and it just goes through these receivers, or do the receivers themselves shoot yeah, up? Yeah, they never really say it's. I just kind of passed it off as comic book science. Yeah. I just like the name he, he comes up with for the sender. His <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, man, come on. Sit down. Think about it a little more. This is a pretty cool invention. You don't want to call it the sender, do you? Yeah. Uh. I like the uh, bit with the prison break, though. You yeah. Know, Batman swooping in the, with the bat plane in the shadow of the, the bat on the ground. It's very cool. Yeah, this is where the, I feel like the story started picking up for me a little bit. Was, you know, she spells out what Vreekill's up to, and now it's like, okay, Batman and Robin got to get to work and yeah, take care of all these things real fast. This uh, this whole fight though with the, I guess it's a telephone pole just lying on the ground, or some kind of pole. Flag pole. Looks like a, no, it's a flagpole. He yeah. calls it a flagpole on page ten. Yeah, he must have knocked that over flying into the prison or something but i guess i mean i can't imagine why there would be a flagpole laying in the middle of a prison yard you but, know but that is very adam west and and yeah oh Bert, yeah Bert ward fighting too they both they they each pick up one end of this flagpole and they just run down the middle and knock all these guys over yeah well, the whole scene too except for the line about them not sticking around for the police the mm-hmm. whole scene feels very adam west and Bert ward yeah yeah he still is is not cool with the police so i wonder when that's going to change or I wonder if it's going to change officially or just um, gradually change. I don't know. I guess we'll find probably out. Probably more of a gradual thing, I would guess. Yeah, probably. Page 11, mm-hmm. someone actually uh, has heard of Robin. Oh, yeah? He says, uh, in the second panel there, he says, that's no company, that's the Batman and that pesky kid Robin. Awesome. So someone's actually so, heard of Robin now, and word is, word is spreading. The first recognition. This this whole fight scene reminds me very much of Robin's first appearance, actually. Mm-hmm. As far as fighting on another unfinished building, you know, high rise. Unfinished buildings in this town. <laughs> yeah, really. Lots of millionaires and lots you of. I think with all the millionaires, I could get some of those fixed up. But <laughs> right. But it is very cool. I like the whole scene where Robin gets beamed in the head by this guy, and right. Batman swoops down to catch him, and then they give Robin a little, a little do to and let him save Batman in return. That was kind of neat. Right. At the bottom of page 12, where Batman is clocking the one guy and the second guy comes up with a gun behind him, mm-hmm. modern Batman would have just taken that guy out too. Yep. He just popped his hand back and he wouldn't have needed Robin's help. Yeah. But it is nice seeing Robin, yeah, like you said, save save Batman. So It seems like Batman needs needs more help now that he has Robin. Yeah. So either they, you know, they obviously just want to give Robin something to do, but also, you know, maybe Batman and just relies on Robin or just trusts that Robin's got his back, you know? Yeah. For some reason, I really like Robin using the sling. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of heroes using weapons. 
like superheroes using weapons. But for some reason, Robin in the sling seems to fit. Yeah, I mean, it's not... Well, for one thing, it just goes with kids. Right. That's what you had when you were a kid, a sling or a you know, rubber band gun, that kind of stuff. So and it, it works a lot better than a rubber band gun. That would just... <laughs> <laughs> Snap out! Snap yeah. out! You know, we all had slingshots and stuff, so... Yeah. I mean, that just seems very useful. And yeah, it's not especially lethal. I guess it could be if you used it right, but... I assume he's not using it to kill people. Um, well, I mean, if he clocks the guy in the head and knocks him off the uh, high rise, that, yeah. that's pretty lethal. So. True. But yeah, I like it too. I think it looks cool, or it works well. Did you think Doctor Vreekill's death was a little abrupt? Uh, yeah, it reminded me of uh, of Doctor Death in a way. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like, although in that case, Doctor Death didn't necessarily do it to himself, but. Well, yeah, but um, it <laughs> it's kind of weird that there'd be a wire. Just sticking out of this machine with enough juice to kill a man. You know? That's just like his suicide plan. <laughs> It'd be awesome if he if he grabbed that and it didn't have enough juice to kill him. <laughs> You'll never take me alive, never. <laughs> oh well, okay, whatever. <laughs> we never find out what becomes of Anne, though. That's she's true, just, huh? She's just gone. She tells Batman about Vreekill's plan, and then we never see her again. Yeah, that's weird. Well, I guess. I guess now that her uncle's dead, she doesn't have to worry so much. I don't know. Or she's still running. <laughs> and Batman forgot to tell her it's cool now. Yeah. And ba- Bruce, he says, oh, well, it was only a minor disturbance. Well, I don't know. There was two major bridges destroyed, a prison riot, a near breakout, and a man died. So I don't think that would qualify as a minor disturbance. He's, he's very cocky. Yes. Yes. Or he is bad at joking. Uh, well, once again, our heroes break the fourth, law, fourth wall for the second time mm-hmm. to tell and us to go to the fair. They're both very, how you doing, in that last panel there. Especially <laughs> Bruce, with his eyebrow raised. <laughs> he can't help it. You know, he's a playboy. <laughs> a wastrel playboy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but overall, you know, like, you know, it wasn't like a bad story, but... It was just very routine. Yeah. It was a good introduction to the characters, though. Which is, I think, what the, these books were meant to be. You know, we get Bruce and Dick hanging out and Batman solving a mystery, mm-hmm. some bat plane and fight scenes and some banter and quips from Batman and Robin. So That's true. I think mostly it was Free Kill that didn't do much for me. Like, like he was just this crazy uncle who, yeah. who schemed a little too big, you know? Yeah. Like, he wrote a lot of letters. I think it would have been cooler if he had, you know, his, like, he had an actual ray gun or something that made steel turn to dust and if he went out and did it himself instead of just writing letters and <laughs> right you know like actually go to a bank and dissolve it and take the money or something like that that might have been cooler but you know, they could have called him the dissolver or something like that. <laughs> I like free kill that's a that's a great name that's true that is true you can't really top that can you yeah um, the story had really very little to do with the world's fair though mm-hmm. for as heavy as they plugged it at the end there because really, it just started there, and then. Well, we're all. I I didn't read any of the other stories in this issue. Um, were they all? Are they all kind of like that? Where they're just. In the 1939 one. Every single story had heavy World's Fair involvement. Oh yeah. And I've not read the rest of this issue for uh, a couple years, so I can't really remember. But but yeah, they all they all involved the World's Fair in some way. Yeah, I just didn't know if it was a, oh hey we're at the World's Fair and then <laughs> they run off to go do something else. As I recall, the Superman story is pretty heavy. 
they they uh, stop a jewel a jewel robbery, as I recall. Okay, but I think it was kind of neat to to see them in that setting, even if it was kind of briefly, just to you know the as end caps for the story. But um, yeah, because you know we've had real everything everywhere he's been has been real life. You know, New York, Hungary, Paris, all that stuff. But those are kind of like you know big things where Gen- yeah, bigger, more generic. Oh, I'm right. going to Paris. Right. right. This is a very specific. Wow, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson were at Disneyland. I could go to Disneyland. <laughs> right. Uh, I could go to the same place they went. That is kind of neat, especially for DC, which you know, of course, nowadays tends to make up everything. But right, right. Um, what do you think of the art in this issue with the new um, anchor? with the different anchor? It's all right. I don't think it was quite as good. Seems a little flatter mm-hmm. and not as detailed. To me. Yeah. And I like we said earlier, I think Dick's anatomy was a little weird. Yeah. Like he just seemed like a short a short adult rather than a kid. <laughs> He's a midget, yeah. Yep, exactly. So maybe they just yeah, I don't know. It wasn't bad though. I mean you can still figure out what's going on and stuff, but Right. Uh but if you'd like to read this story, it's been reprinted three times that I found. It was in Batman, the World's Finest Archives, volume one hardcover from 2002 and it was in dc comics rarities archives volume one hardcover in 2005 and of course our trusty batman chronicles volume two trade paperback in 2006 it was also reprinted in batman and me bob kane's autobiography ah very cool there's a section in the middle that reprints a couple full stories why they chose this one of all things i don't know but yeah I don't know. Maybe, like you said, it was some sort of way of representing what Batman and Robin are all about. Could be. Um, but or you know. it could have been... Let's see, that came out in 1989. I don't think the Archives program had started, started at that point. Had it? DC's Archive? I was going to say, maybe that was the only... One of the early Batman stories they hadn't put in the Archives. But oh, could be. I don't think the Archives had started at 89, so... Maybe it's just a way of plugging or selling the book or something. Yeah. Yes. Um, in the back cover, there is a, a little blurb to get you to buy the the book, and it's it says, "Presenting the greatest aggregation of top flight adventure characters ever gathered together in a single comic book," and then it shows the heads of Superman, Batman and Robin, Johnny Thunder, the Hourman, Zatara, Slam Bradley, and Red, White, and Blue. That's a great ad. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh, and uh, to go back to the reprints, that Rarities Archive reprints mm-hmm. the entire comic book. Oh, really? Yeah. Even the you know generic uh, features that never show up again. So it's a nice little time capsule. Yeah, I wasn't really sure what that, that archives is even about as far as... It reprints both the World's Fair comics and then a comic called... I think it was the big All-American comic book. Oh, okay. It was just a, an omnibus title that... Uh, an anthology, a one-shot anthology book that collected a bunch of, there was like a Green Arrow story, I think, and a Flash story. A bunch of the all-American characters. So just stuff that doesn't fit handy, handily right. anywhere else, or tidily, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Other books out from D.C. in May 1940. Uh, it was actually quite a big month. We had More Fun Comics number 56 with the first appearance of Congo Bill by Whitney Ellsworth and George Papp. And Congo Bill is an adventure strip in the vein of Alex Raymond's Jungle Jim 
and he may be better known by his Silver Age incarnation of Kongorilla. Huh. Uh, nope. You've heard? Nope. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, he's but actually don't Kongorilla go by is, me though. He's actually appearing in the Justice League title at the moment, or he was. Oh, okay. Robin James Robinson's run on it, but um. There was also Adventure Comics number 51 with a Sandman cover by Craig Flessel. We had Superman number 5 with four brand spanking new stories and a penciled Superman cover penciled by Wayne Boring. There was Flash Comics number 7, an all-American book. The uh, Hawkman story in this this issue, per Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, is called Czar the Unkillable Man and features a villain called Czar who dies at the end of the story. So, well, that was false advertising. Yeah, I guess he wasn't that unkillable after all. And we had All-American Comics number 16 with the first appearance of Alan Scott, the Green Lantern. All right. By Bill Finger and Mark Nodell. Alan Scott is a railroad engineer who comes into possession of a magic lantern made of a mysterious green metal. And then he fashions a ring from a chunk of the metal. And if it's touched to the lantern every 24 hours, it will be supercharged with a powerful form of energy that's able to manipulate any object except for wood. You know, I appreciate that he's like, you know, the first Green Lantern, and we wouldn't have all the other Green Lanterns probably if he didn't exist. But, yeah, he, he's not really my favorite. Like, as far as connectivity between Golden Age and Silver Age, yeah, he, he doesn't really connect, merge, mesh well with, you know, the Green Lantern Corps to me. Or No, because it was kind of a, an entire different mm-hmm. um, origin story. Than the Green, I think at one point they did actually try to work him into the Green Lantern Corps, and I don't yep. remember the story on that exactly. They but. have, they have, but yeah, I just he's not like, you know, like to compare him to say Jay Garrick, where that actually works really well for me, where you know you right. got Flash and then Barry Allen and then Wally West, all those guys seem like family, but yeah, and also I'm not one of those guys that says uh, his costume is weird looking, but I love it anyway. I really don't like his costume. <laughs> oh, you don't? No. It's- it's eclectic. Yes. And it, yeah. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, anyway. In, in contemporary stories, Alan was a hero of Gotham City mm-hmm. prior to Batman, so he has that connection there. True. Um, and with his debut, there's only one member of the original lineup of the Justice Society of America that has yet to appear. So we're getting ever closer to the Justice Society. And there, there was a... Uh... And I don't know what the story where it was now. I guess I'll post it in the notes when I look it up later. But there was a story that talked about how Bruce Wayne's dad was a member of his fan club, Alan Scott's fan club. Oh, okay. So that was kind of cool. And that's yeah. like that's like in the Batcave. Hmm. I never heard that story. We also had Action Comics number twenty six, and a brand new title, All Star Comics number one, featuring Hawkman and the Sandman, the Flash, the Spectre. Our Man and more, all in separate stories. Then there was a another Mutt and Jeff comic from All American, featuring what I think is reprints of the newspaper strip. And lastly, More Fun Comics number 57, which was the second issue of that title for the month. Outside of DC, Timely Marvel had three comics, including Red Raven Comics number one, which featured Jack Kirby's first work for the company, as well as his first collaboration with Joe Simon for the company. And we had Nickel Comics number one from Fawcett, which was half the price of other comics at the time, but also half the pages because it only came out with 32 pages rather than 64. But that features the first appearance of Bullet Man, 
who will go on to be a somewhat big character. I've heard of him before, yeah. <laughs> and then we had National Comics number one with the first appearance of Uncle Sam as a comic book character. And also a character named Wonder Boy, who was a nameless boy that fell to Earth from the planet Viro, or possibly Vero. And he possessed the strength of a hundred men, and he joined forces with a Sergeant Crane of the Army Air Corps and began using his superhuman abilities to fight evil. And I wonder if this Wonder Boy had any influence on the fact that they're going to soon start promoting Robin as the original Boy Wonder. Hmm. Well, I don't know. This Wonder Boy sounds very original, so... Oh, yeah. And I, and I also wonder if they're going to keep calling Robin Wonder Boy. Oh. Long or if they'll just stick to Boy Wonder. Yeah. So we'll have to keep an eye out for that. Yeah. I wonder why they didn't just sue the pants off of Wonder Boy, but... It could have been because the concept wasn't... Well, the concept is very much like Superman, except he's a kid, so... This concept's more Superman close, closer to Superman than, say, uh, Captain Marvel. Right. From what it sounds like, anyway. Maybe because Wonder Boy didn't sell, so it didn't matter. <laughs> could be, yeah. But that's all I got. Okay. Oh, I'm doing the outro. Yep. I, I was kicking back, waiting for you to do it. <laughs> all right, well, thanks, everybody, for listening uh, to another episode. If you have questions or comments, etc., you can email us at podcast at batmanlegends.com. And at the website, batmanlegends.com, you can find show notes as well as a contact form, a link to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as the RSS feed and the iTunes link. And we are still encouraging uh, iTunes reviews. We're getting closer to that uh, goal of 12 that we set. So hop on over to iTunes, if you would, and leave us a review. And I also invite you to check out uh, Mike's other show, The Mighty Shield, a Captain America podcast, which he co-hosts with John M. Wilson, as well as my other podcast, The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, which I do all by my lonesome. And we also invite you to check out our new partners, Gotham Knights Online, which is an excellent resource for all things Batman, from comic books to other media and merchandise. And you can find them at GothamKnightsOnline.com. They have a podcast, too, that comes out every two weeks where they talk about all the latest news, Batman-related news. It's pretty good. Cool. Makes sounds like a good uh, sister show to our – you can get the new stuff and the old stuff. Yep. Next episode, we'll be looking at Batman in June 1940, which is just one comic book. So we get a bit of a break next episode, but it's Detective Comics number 41. Until then, we will see you next time. See you next week. Batman created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger and is copyright DC Comics. Fantastic. I don't know. They're always stupid, but...